Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Whatever flow you guys dictate and go from there. Cool. Yeah, that's fine. So, Russ, why don't you start out just giving us a quick summary of who you are, where you're at, and that sort of stuff, and then we can kind of get into whatever whatever we get into. Great. So, um, Russ Concert lived just outside of Houston, Texas, uh, grew up in the Midwest, in Nebraska, went to school in Iowa, um, mechanical engineer originally by trade, became a petroleum engineer, fell in love with energy, spent 30 years in the energy industry with Shell. Um, first part of that was exploring and producing for oil and gas, all called dead carbon all around the world. And second part uh, helped set up the technology venturing organization um, in the late 90s and then ended up leading the angel stage breakthrough technology investment group there for many, many years. So kind of living at the bleeding edge of energy technology and renewable energy was kind of where I come from. And um, ironically, uh, without me knowing it, set the stage for me to take this new direction into regenerative agriculture. So now I'm, uh, I'm now an entrepreneur myself, 100% grass-fed beef, uh, partnership with National Audubon Society, direct-to-consumer business, also uh, chairman of an organization called the Grass-Fed Exchange, which is a uh, 501c3 educational nonprofit sharing regenerative agriculture practices farmer to farmer uh, around the world. So that's kind of in a nutshell who I am and um, where I've come from. Hey, just, I don't know, Russ, are you able to come on camera? Just out of curiosity. Oh, is that, yeah, sorry. There's a, there's a camera button on your. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just didn't pay attention to it. Here I am. Did you pop in there? Yeah, just. You want to start over? No, that's fine. No, it's okay. okay. We just want to see how other people know how beautiful you are. So it's <laughs> uh, it's something, you know, we put this up on YouTube. So a lot of people like to, to, yeah, to, yeah. to see Don't that. Yeah, control right. at all. Um, you know, interesting background, you know, and it's kind of, you know, we, as you are aware, and all of us are aware, we're in this sort of climate crisis. There's a lot right. of people that are, you know, save the world, save the planet, you know, we're going to all give up meat and, and, and it's going to fix the world. And you being in the energy sector, I mean, there's a lot of people say, well, maybe it's not the cows, maybe it's more the, you know, the fossil fuel industry and, and, and some of these others. What is your 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 overall assessment? And there's other people out there still that says, "Hey, man, it's not really causing climate change. It's all volcanoes in the sun." What is your sort of take on on that overall sort of picture? Wow, that's a that's a big complicated area. But I would say the underlying um, problems we face are, are a function of our own mindset and how we interface with the planet. And the, and the carbon question is kind of fundamental to that. We've got this big imbalance of carbon up in the air that's unnecessarily warming things because we're not managing our carbon down here on the ground very well. So um, everybody wants to have one scapegoat, like point the finger at one thing. And like the biggest thing by far um, is the uh, emission of carbon from fossil fuels um, and the CO2. The methane part of that is a significant part. 
it's also importantly people pay attention to it. Um, but but it's a bigger story. We've we've really um, I think if we dig back deeper, we'll find that we've been breaking Earth's ecosystem since we first invented the plow ten thousand years ago. So we've just gotten really good at breaking Earth's ecology uh, faster in the last uh, couple hundred years, and especially the last fifty or so. So. Um, you know, I wish it were as simple as saying, you know, we could say, you know, here's one thing. If we fix that, everything is fixed. We're all health, healthy and happy and utopia reemerges and all that stuff. But even this morning, having some um, conversations in the, in the Twitter universe here, of uh, like if you could snap your fingers tomorrow morning and convert the entire economy to a renewable energy system, um, it doesn't actually fix the problem because we've got all this legacy carbon up in the atmosphere. And if, if we don't pull some of that back down, we'll continue to get warm just on what's there already. So, um, and nature um, is by far the most scalable way to do that. Um, and farming and how we produce food um, is the biggest lever that we can pull because that's where we interface with nature the most. And in, in fact, uh, kind of one of the, crazy fateful moments in my own journey here from what I'll call the dead carbon to the living carbon world was the first day I got my hands on some soil samples uh, under a regenerative ranch happened to be from Australia maybe uh, ironic or fateful at this moment when Australia is burning uh, but I immediately recognized the quantity and distribution of carbon in this healthy soil is identical to the source rocks that produce the oil and gas in the first place that was my particular specialty in oil and gas. And all of a sudden it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh, what these farmers are really doing is putting the carbon back exactly where we took it out of in the first place. It just had hundreds of millions of years of time delay um, between those things. And what we really need to do in reinventing our food system is restore that other side of the carbon cycle. So we need to fix this um, emitting side of the carbon cycle by emitting less carbon, eliminating it if we can, but we also need to improve this sink side of the carbon cycle in order to bring everything back into a healthy balance again. One of the criticisms that we see about, you know, that sort of philosophy, this sort of regenerative agriculture, you know, there's a lot of holistic management, adaptive right. multi-paddock grazing, all the different right. sort of uh, names that it goes by is that people will say that um, yeah, it doesn't really offset enough of the carbon, you know, there's, there's not a lot of studies out there. Um, I know that the White Oaks pasture study was conducted last mm -hmm. year by an independent group showed, showed a net carbon right. sink. Um, you know, one of the, one of the thoughts is we just, we just haven't really looked at it that much. And, and when we look at all the climate data, like the IPCC and those guys that are talking about, you know, emissions, they, they readily say this does not include you know, soil sequestration in our calculation. Right, correct. Why is it we don't really do that? Is it is it just we don't have enough data on that? Um, there yeah, that's exactly right. It's it because it's a bitch to measure and add up. It's so variable. Um, so over on that bookshelf over there is a harvesting the biosphere book. Um, oh, that, uh, the guy's name is escaping me. It's um, it, it, it'll come. Wonderful stuff. Quantifies all these ways of fluxes of carbon in the biosphere. It gets to the soil and says. It's a really big number, but it's so uncertain. We don't know what to do with it. So we're just going to put it aside, right? Mm. Um, and so um, I'm a co-author on a 2016 paper in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation where we tried to take some of these things from uh, multi-paddock grazing and um, no-till agriculture and say, well, how big could it be? 
Um, and in that paper, we showed how a conversion of our North American agriculture system, at least anyway, could convert North American agriculture from a net source to a net sink that's substantial. So like you said, the, the uh, recent um, work done by Qantas uh, at White Oak Pastures is another anecdotal case that suggests that that's true. The paper before that by uh, Paige Stanley and Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan State uh, did a good case study on just the finishing cycle of uh, beef production that showed it could be a net sink as well. So we're kind of in this state where, you know, and I, I think health maybe is, is ahead of us where, you know, mechanistically we can explain what's going on and anecdotally we can cite successes, but they're all kind of N equals one experiments, right? Um, I'm a part of a science team that's um, uh, being led out of Arizona State University, also with Texas A&M, Michigan State University, University of Arkansas, uh, a number of other uh, private scientists um, that are trying to take this to another level. Um, it's got funding from the Foundation for Future Agriculture Research from McDonald's. Um, and uh, we're gathering our results in on that now, should be reporting first results on that. Um, plus or minus the second quarter of next year is what it's currently looking like, um, where we really try to more systematically um, start documenting um, what's really going on in these systems. Because you can't even, it's not even just a carbon story. It's about water infiltration. It's about wildlife and birds and habitat and uh, farmer productivity, you know, or the farmers making a better living in this system and trying to get that. It's kind of, kind of like nutrition in that, okay, so what? Your cholesterol went down, right? But you know, do I feel healthier and I'm more, more vibrant? Am I living a more meaningful life? Um, it, it, we're, we're, we're at that stage of early on trying to put more rigorous um, numbers and studies on it. And these things just take time and they take funding and everyone wants the answers tomorrow, but unfortunately it's science, so it takes time. Yeah, Russ, you know, you kind of alluded to it. And it's one thing that I find interesting with this particular topic is it seems like as soon as you think you've solved one piece of the puzzle, you realize like maybe you made that piece better, but it either negatively or, right. or somehow unknowingly impacted another piece to the puzzle. And then you kind of have to go over there and it, it almost seems kind of like a Rubik's cube in the sense that like, you're like, okay, I've got this part figured out, but then it comes at the expense of another part is, is that more or less indicative of like the, a reasoning to move closer to like an adaptive multi-paddock type of a process since that is kind of working within the system that we have known has been there for a while? Yeah. And I think, um, you, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the White Oak Pastures. Will Harris is a good friend and my friend Peter Bick, who's leading our science project, um, did, did a film of 100,000 Beating Hearts for Will's Place. And there's a nice little thing in there where Will quotes on um, uh, quotes John Muir, a famous ecologist, who says something to the effect of, uh, you find out when you pull on a string in nature, it's connected to everything else, right? And this is the inherent problem of ecology. And because humans are nature and nature is nature, that, that it is all interconnected. Now, the good news is, um, I think that we find that some of, you know, when you peel it back to its core, what you find is what nature is doing it as a whole is figuring out how to use biology to capture solar energy and cycle it in life, right? 
and turn it over and over. Make maximum use of these fixed mineral nutrient concentrations in order to take that energy that started with the sun and help it propel life and, and use it to do all these interactions between um, things as they mature along. Will's place, if, you've, uh, if you haven't been and you get a chance to go to Will's place, you know, all these layers that you see there of grazing ruminants and hogs and chickens and then, but the processing and then the soldier flies that get fed back to the chickens and the compost that goes into a system. It's all connected, but under the core, the carbon um, is a really good metric for like the health of the ecosystem from a scientific perspective. Now, um, I think one of our challenges in this space is that, um, you know, if we're seeing carbon accumulate in an ecosystem, that's a good thing. If we're losing it from an ecosystem, that's a bad thing. Um, but kind of like, you know, what's a ton of carbon worth to, um, to consumers is, you know, it's very abstract, right? Um, uh, we kind of conceptually know that it's important. And, and this is where um, kind of we've been moving in a direction uh, with our own business activity here to start shifting the emphasis to um, let, letting life itself be the judge. So, um, you know, our partnership with Audubon Society is about, hey, okay, it's going to take us a while to measure and understand what's going on with carbon. But if we're doing things that bring birds back, that's a good thing. If the deer are coming back, that's a good thing. I'm currently reading a book on beavers. It's just really fascinating. Um, and I think each of these elements of a healthy ecosystem with a living, thriving um, biology are, um, you know, all indicators that we're on the right course. So it's complicated. I, I personally, I wish I was, uh, you know, when I graduated from college back in the early 1980s, <clears throat> things were fairly straightforward. And um, I, I thought I, I, I knew a lot, but this fascinating field of science of ecology and regenerative agriculture is just rich with questions that are going to take decades to document and understand. You know, maybe human health and nutrition is the same, right? It's just so complicated. You, you push on one thing and boom, five other things change as well. So it's, um, you know, I think we're very, very early on, but we're heading in the right direction and all signs are encouraging. And I do think, you know, as someone who's been involved in the practice of and the visioning of leading very bleeding edge science and technology type stuff. I, I think there's some really, really profound and interesting science behind all this stuff, but you still got to do the research. You still got to do the work to understand it and demonstrate it and truly understand how it all works. Hey Russ, I think that, uh, you know, a couple, one of the statements that you made, which I think is, is very uh, important is you know we there are things we we don't we don't know how to measure yet or they're difficult to measure and therefore we just ignore yeah. them and I think that's really a concerning thing because when we talk about even like methane I know I've talked with you know Stephen Zwick who is uh -huh. uh, yep, one of the ones friend. who who referred us and we talk about you know how do we measure methane do we do a, do a bottom up calculation where we we measure right. things we know how to measure and then not really know what else is out there, or do we do a top-down assessment? We look what's in the atmosphere and say, where did it come from? And the top-down seems to be a more, maybe more reasonable way to do that, but it doesn't give us the same answer as the bottom-up measurements do. And so where there's so many things, we're discovering all these huge sources of methane emissions, you know, these big giant wetlands in Africa and the, and right. the natural gas leaks and the, you know, the, so these things that we just haven't discovered yet. And, and so, we just kind of, we've got this sort of mindset that it's all about cows, you know, belching methane and enteric emissions and, and fertile and manure. Yeah. And we, we tend to ignore everything else that we're learning about. It. Yeah. So I think this, we can, I think we can confidently say based on this triangulation from the tops down and bottoms up stuff now that 
um, we know that atmospheric methane is increasing and it's likely not the cows. Um, and um, there's some evidence that kind of bounces back and forth between the fossil fuel stuff and like you said, wetlands in Africa or other places in the um, <clears throat> tropical areas. Um, and, and it'll probably take a while to resolve. Uh, but again, the, the, the measurement is difficult. Like um, if you go out with a methane sensor now, you, you get a point in a place. And um, you, you might like uh, for soils, uh, which is relevant here, um, there's a little chamber you can put on the ground. Uh, it's interesting, um, as a part of this research project that I mentioned, uh, my colleagues at Michigan State University are including a, a contraption that that the cows have to come into and feed, and then it measures their methane being emitted in the process of feeding during short bursts. Um, and um, so we're able to start adding up the pieces and see if they start making sense. Now, the most exciting technology um, is that, that we're working on a, something called an eddy covariance tower, um, also called a flux tower. It basically is like a micrometeorological station. Um, we can measure CO2 and methane and moisture going in and out of any ecosystem at any given time. Um, and think of it like an umbrella for an area where um, for uh, you know, a, a reasonably large area anyway, we can get a sense of how much energy is coming in versus bouncing out and how much carbon is going in versus bouncing out, how much methane is going in versus going out. Um, and you kind of get this whole energy mass flux thing going on where you can really understand that ecosystem at a flux uh, level. And what was really interesting um, is we're actually seeing some pretty good coherence between what we're seeing with these towers as a part of the science project and what we're adding up by measuring pieces. And that's some of the stuff we'll report on um, next year. Um, that the magic now is uh, getting them more affordable. We've made really, really good progress in that direction. It's kind of like, um, I guess the best analogy in human health and nutrition would be uh, continuous glucose monitoring, right? You know, if, if you go from getting a finger prick, you know, once a year, that's kind of what we currently do with soil tests. Um, and it's really like three to five years before you can detect enough differences to really have confidence in them. But with these flux towers, we can now have the equivalent of that continuous glucose monitoring where we can really start understanding what's happening. I mean, literally now on my desktop, I can watch the grass grow. I can watch the carbon go into the ground and I can see, hey, did it come out again at night? Um, or did it come out again in the winter? Or is it staying there? We can, we can start seeing and understanding all this stuff. But it's very, very exciting science. Um, it's just going to take us a while to get our get a complete understanding of it all. Yeah, Ross, that's really interesting stuff because I think about it like if I go into my car or into my garage and I start the car and drive drive off, like there's all these little mechanisms in place to make sure I don't do something silly like let my oil run out or my tire get too low, like a gauge or a pressure signal will come on and then I remedy it before it becomes a problem that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time and energy solving. And it sounds like that's kind of the direction that they're looking at with some of this sort of stuff where if we can identify like where the big problem areas are, we can possibly adjust things before they get out of control. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's both a problem and an opportunity though too, Zach. So it's like, yeah, I can, I can um, fix problems, but what you're really trying to do as a farmer is figure out how do I manage my system to make it most productive. Right. And so if um, it, 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 again, I think multi-paddock grazing is equivalent to high intensity weightlifting. You're trying to hit something really hard and then have a rest period. 
and you want to understand what's that optimum, right? Should I be lifting more? Should I lift more frequently? Or should I have longer rest periods? Um, and, and Sean, back to the question you asked, therefore, about one of the advantages of this regenerative agriculture, multi-pad grazing, much to the frustration of traditional um, industrialists and academics is they just want a prescription, right? They just want like a little sheet. Here's what I need to go into the gym and do, you know, for, for an athlete, but here's, here's what I need to do as a farmer, you know, A, B, C, D, right? They're used to plow here on this day, put this chemical on, plant this seed, and then boom, as long as you follow this recipe, you're good. Um, and nature didn't work that way, right? You have to, every day is an experiment. What you, in your body, it's what you eat, how you exercise and all that stuff. And then you have to constantly be looking for feedback. Hey, did that help me or hurt me? And in regenerative agriculture with tools like multi-paddock grazing, you're doing the same thing. You have these bursts of activity that are intentional. They're formulated with insight. They're trying to do the right thing. But then you're constantly learning about how do I keep my system going? And in general, what the leading farmers learn is that like if, even once you figure out a recipe, it's not a matter of just continuing to do it. You, it's, like, it's like your body as an athlete. You have to keep pushing it in new ways if you want to keep growing. Otherwise, you'll just stagnate and plateau and even peter out over time. So I think regenerative agriculture is very similar, probably just further behind um, than health and uh, nutrition and human performance. Yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, and it's, I, can, I can see the frustration of the people that just want to formula. And when we had Alan Saber on the show, same thing. It was a lot. It's management. You got to react. Right. It's, every situation is different. And you right. got to just deal with that. And that's for, I can see where that's very frustrating because people just want simple answers. Now, I want to talk to you about some of the criticisms that people will level against sort of trying this regenerative sort of system. And one, right. some of the people will say, yeah, there's only so much carbon you can put back in the soil. And after that, it doesn't matter again. You know, once, once carbon right. is, is sequestered in the soil, you can't make any more gains and you're back to square one. What do you, what do you say to that? I mean, I know FAO says we're going to run out of soil in 60 years, whether you believe that or is true, or, right. or, or maybe there's some truth there, maybe there's not. Obviously, we are currently degrading our soils with the tilling and the, and the, and the, and the chemical fertilizers and whatnot. So what do you say to the folks who say, yeah, but you can only make so many gains and then, then it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of you're wasting your time. Yeah, the, the reality is it's more complicated than most people think it is. Um, the, the simplest way to articulate it is um, soil is not a fixed bathtub. So it's not a matter of filling it up and then you're done. Um, I think when you peel back the science of soil, what's really going on is this highly interactive process between plant roots and parent soil material and little tiny microbes and slightly bigger microbes and then small insects and so on and worms and, uh, uh, you know, uh, any other tunneling animals. So you get this kind of churning system and what you learn in um, um, something that I've, I've done to articulate, we did one article in a, in a farming magazine to help people appreciate that, that the reason the limit is, so I, I think the carbon growth will can, can occur rapidly and then will slow down on any given acre over time. But I, I think it's still highly uncertain whether it would actually fully plateau. Um, the experiments that suggest that it plateaus are highly constrained, not allowing, not enabling that disturbance for that churning of a biological ecosystem that you would see in real nature to continue to occur. So what, what should be happening in a real ecosystem is that the bathtub is growing, the soil is growing upwards. Um, one of the things I articulated in that farming article and, and I've kind of got a paper in draft 
um, is you really don't have to go any further than kind of the first principles that even the ancient Greeks would recognize of mass balance. And again, very familiar to me from the oil field uh, perspective, because you try to figure out how much carbon is in the deep earth. So you can figure out how many barrels there are that, that, that you can take out. Um, and in that case, um, it's, it's kind of funny. The dead carbon and live carbon world seem to operate as like mirror images of one another. The things that make a good oil reservoir make a bad farm field and, and vice versa. But in that case, when we would produce oil from a field, you might imagine you have a compacting system if it's a softer sediment. And in this case, when you're putting carbon back into soil, you're not just filling the holes between the soil. You're actually participating in a process that inflates the soil volume itself. And so literally, I mean, I don't know we know where the limit is yet, but kind of figuratively speaking, I, I would say the sky is the limit. Um, and although there's really high uncertainty numbers around it, every time I kind of sat down to try to put some back of the envelope math based on some anecdotes, again, N, N equals one type experiments of, of people, um, the answer I get back is we would run out of carbon in the year before we would run out of places to put it in the soil. So the soil has this amazing uh, capacity. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think we can certainly move the needle in a very significantly positive direction with soil. And if we're so good at it that that becomes a question, well, we can study it when that time uh, gets here, but it's certainly, I think there's a good reason to believe that we can at least put a very significant volume and we may be able to put more than we ever might need. So uh, further research that we can address when we get there. We've had uh, people that are more aligned with the sort of more intensive, you know, I guess, modern industrial agriculture folks like uh, Dr. Sarah Place, who's, you know, mm -hmm. works in with the NCBA and Frank Mittlaner. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when Sarah says that, you know, if we were to bring the rest of the world up to U.S. standards for efficiency with better animal nutrition, uh, better genetic, you know, breeding practices, you know, nutrition practices, we could basically feed the world the same amount of meat we have now. In fact, we could feed all 10 billion people with even less animals than we have, even if they could bring, you know, the, the, the rest of the world, because they're so far behind, you know, we look at right. the majority of the cattle in the world, are, they're, they're still using technology that's a thousand years old. And, and if right. we were to bring it up even to the 1960s, we could do that. But a lot of people would say, well, maybe we should do even better. Maybe we should do regenerative agriculture. But the naysayers will say there's not enough grassland. We'd run, right. out, of, we'd run out of land. And I'm seeing anecdotally from guys like, you know, Will Harris and Joel Salatin. And we had uh, Trent Hendricks from Cambrio Ranch all mm -hmm. saying that they are more productive on the same amount of land. Correct. It's anecdotal. Are we going to get some science that's going to say you can run X amount more animals and be X amount more productive in the same patch of grass as the guy doing the traditional pasturing. Is that, is that data going to come out there or do we have any credible data that's already out there? Yeah. Well, data? again, we've got a lot of N equals one data or a reasonable amount to support everything you just said. And by the way, Sarah and Frank, I know them both. They're awesome. Um, and I've never disagreed with anything they've said. Um, they're solid, solid scientists that are doing great stuff. So, um, I would say I'm, I'm kind of a bit more with the second part of your sentence there, which says, and I think with regenerative agriculture, we can do even better. <clears throat> um, and, and so we uh, just need to not stop there um, with, with that kind of system. So um, back of the envelope um, uh, on our, um, on our uh, 
kind of this blue nest beef thing are, uh, we, we started out as standard soil on standardsoil.com. Got a blog article from one of my partners, Alan Williams, um, on, on this kind of putting some back of the envelope math to that. And can we feed people uh, with just regenerative agriculture system? And, and the answer continues to be, it's kind of like the soil, how much carbon can we put in soil? Yes, back of the envelope, we can more than feed people. Um, but I think we're at a state in the industry where we need to prove it now. Um, the science to be able to document that, um, we just didn't have enough scope in this current science project. There's too much variability and too few things to really be able to document that at scale. I think it'll come, um, but it's probably going to be another, say, three to five years out before we can probably really start getting more confidence. I, I think in the meantime, uh, aside from the scientific studies on, you know, can we make this acre more productive, is the more we have farmers just making each acre more productive, the more N equal one type folks out there, you know, we will, you know, in part answer a lot of that question. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about Dave Feldman, you know, he's become a, kind of the ultimate N equals one of the cholesterol and lipid question stuff, right? You know, we have, if we can have, you know, just some really good rigorous N equals one type people keep pushing things forward, we're going to learn a lot. So I don't know that it's as black and white as like a magical study is going to come out. We're going to suddenly understand this. I would say that pretty much universally, we see the overall uh, stocking rates go up by a factor of two to three. In fact, the common problem for a regenerative practitioner in the beef business is so quickly, once they start changing practices, they start getting so much more forage that they don't have enough cows. Um, and and, and then, then you don't have enough, uh, you, you got to get more money to go get more cows. So, you know, you, the, the problem turns into a good one. So that generally continues to be the case. Um, I'm sure there'll be exceptions. Uh, overall, again, it comes back to the same thing is, are we managing an ecosystem so it captures more sunshine? Well, what's it capturing more sunshine in? It's, it's forage, it's something growing of some kind. So inevitably, it's about bringing in the total productive capacity of an acre and, and raising it. Um, and and I, I think that's going to be pretty much a defining attribute of this this kind of agriculture. And just to, just to be clear, because you know, let's say if we we triple our you know our, our productivity on land, and so we go from you know ninety five million cattle to you know close to three hundred million cattle. I mean, let's just say that plays out. Those cattle are going to put out produce more methane than than the ninety million cattle. Are we going to offset that completely with with soil sequestration of carbon? Yeah, um, I think it's very plausible. Again, I think um, you know I mentioned I'm reading the book about beavers. It's just wonderful. They had kind of the same thing. The beavers would build ponds. They would emit more methane, but then they look in the soil under the ponds. You start adding up all the carbon that's accumulating under there. Then it, it truly becomes a net sink. I, I think when you start to understand ecosystems and natural life and how it works, they're always going to work in a way that the more productive system for the actors within it um, lead to the increase in capture of that incoming solar energy and that the carbon that's being stored, kind of the place where I separate from a lot of folks is, is that the objective here is not to take carbon and store it and lock it away in a vault. It's to take that carbon and put it to work in an ecosystem that's helping life thrive and grow. Um, 
And um, so the whole word sequestration doesn't kind of work anymore. And a lot of people that are looking at this is, you know, okay, I'll lock it away, but will it stay there forever? And I'm like, it's, it's just the wrong question. The, the right question is, do we have a healthy ecosystem where it's in balance, where the methane going out, again, as an energy engineer, when I look at methane, what I see is energy that could have been um, oxidized and used, but leaked out of an ecosystem because something wasn't there to burn it yet. Um, mm. You know, like in um, a lot uh, in um, feedlot production, I think Frank and his team at, at UC Davis are doing great stuff uh, in, in uh, whether it's seaweed or other supplements to reduce uh, direct methane consumption in animal. Um, th those are legitimate. And they're real. But if you peel it back a little bit further, what you'll actually find is that in addition to the methane going down, the, the weight gain per unit feed stock going into the animal goes up, right? And that's because you're taking more of the energy out of the food and it's getting used in the animal's metabolism. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what you'll see in this stuff. In our case, in a pastured setting, uh, like in the Stanley Roundtree paper that I mentioned earlier, uh, when they did their uh, methane stuff, the baseline things that they compared against were the IPCC standards for how you calculate methane emissions um, in an animal system. But then they actually measured things and they saw numbers about 30% lower. And, and, you know, at least the hypothesis is that that's because you have a more diverse, rich, nutrient-rich forage that the animal is getting. So it's emitting less methane per unit of gain as well. Um, so... You know, it's a complicated question, but I think the bottom line answer is that, yes, we'll know that the system is working because, you know, we're building carbon in a functioning, working ecosystem and we're leaking less unutilized energy and carbon back at, out into the atmosphere in the form of methane. So, so, Russ, just to clarify with the seaweed thing, are you saying that essentially what we are maybe seeing with that is that by accelerating the process of essentially cattle growth or getting these cattle up to weight faster, we're kind of, that's coming at the expense of increased methane production. So when we introduce a variable that lowers that methane output, we're also slowing down the rate of growth of that, of that cow as well. Yeah, it doesn't have to be necessarily one-to-one -one so much, but you'll know you're doing it rightly, let's say, um, so you, you, you could stop the methane emission of an animal by killing it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so there's some things that could impair the animal's health and cut methane emission and slow down growth. But when you're doing it rightly and what they're seeing, I think, with a lot of these things, um, a data source that um, I like to use, uh, 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 Feed and Livestock Australia, I think that's what they're called. Uh, it's a great program, and they've, so they've got a half a dozen different research threads going on of different things that you could feed animals. And what you see is this effect for most of them where the methane goes down, the productivity goes up. And I would say that becomes kind of a criteria for the good ones, right? Um, and, and, of course, the numbers are going to work whether you're in a, in a feedlot context or in a pastured context for that. If you're getting something in the diet that allows your body to metabolize better, then it's going to be healthier. At the same time, you're going to have that you know, unutilized energy just kind of going up the, out the tailpipe. It's kind of like a, you know, poorly turned car tuned carburetor on a car, right? Uh, I guess that dates me uh, back to the 80s <laughs> <coughs> um, with carburation. But right, if you, didn't, if you didn't have it tuned right, you'd have unburned hydrocarbons in your exhaust. <coughs> Sorry, I had a flu last week and still. There you go.
All right, folks, this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high-quality beef, chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild-caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured, ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. The chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to ButcherBox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our long-standing sponsors. Now, back to the show. I wanted, I do want to hop back really quick to what you were talking about before when we were looking at just the scalability of a multi-paddock uh, multi grazing mm-hmm. versus, say, conventional beef production in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times people think like two ways. They think, well, we need to dig in on one of these and make everything that way. Or they think we need to have like places that can like that we have shown like the white oak pastures areas right. to be able to do this white. They do it that way. And there's maybe some places where it's too difficult to do that. So you can stick to a more conventional approach. Uh, is there a third or I guess maybe fourth, depending on how you look at it, option of doing, because I've heard, I've heard this word thrown around and I admittedly don't know much at all, if anything about it, but like a hybridized approach to, using some of the benefits from that we see from from a more conventional agriculture animal agriculture approach but also using the adaptive multi-paddock grazing <laughs> approach as well like a hybrid that would make it better than we have now and maybe if nothing else at least bridge the gap between now and a point where we could get to a system where we're almost entirely multi-paddock zach i completely agree it's an excellent question i'm really glad you asked it because um you know, by day, I'm primarily focused on bringing a fully regenerative prod, uh, product to consumers uh, right now. Um, I sat on a panel with uh, Sarah Place, who you mentioned earlier here um, last year, um, and uh, a place that I just come outright and say it. If, if you gave me a magic wand and allowed me to change something in the system, I would change the cow-calf production um, system. Uh, in North America to this multi-paddock grazing holistic management um, system. Um, and, and, then it, and, and then, yes, it's less than perfect um, um, if the animal goes to a feedlot, but it's still a huge step ahead. In fact, the numbers would be big, big because most of the acres in the United States are in cow-calf production. They're not in finishing. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if, if as a national policy, you were to try to roll out these regenerative agriculture practices, you you could... I'm not sure you could quite turn it into a net sink if you don't finish the job, but you could move the arrow, um, uh, you know, even further in the right direction that way. And a good example, when I tell people, you know, can this scale, uh, my, my friends, Emery Birdwell and Deborah Clark, they're up in Henrietta, Texas, uh, north of Dallas, Fort Worth, just south of the Oklahoma border. They have about 13,000 acres. They have 5,000 head, um, in a single herd that they move about four or five times a day. Um, and um, uh, the first time I was ever physically on the farm a couple of years ago, um, I, I was in the ATV with Deborah. We were in the back 
area looking at some of the, the native grasses that, that had uh, resurrected in the place. We came around the corner, my bearings were not set and you know, up way ahead, like a mile and a half away, it looked like somebody had a feedlot. I'm going like, whose feedlot is that? And she, well, that's our herd, right? <laughs> it was so distant because you can see this massive herd of animals. And that's what 5,000 head moving five times a day will look like across their landscape. Now, and, and in their case, they're running a stalker operation is what we call it. So they take calves um, in at five or 600 pounds and then sell out at eight or 900 pounds. And then those animals go to a feedlot um, to be finished in the conventional industrial model. Well, Emory Birdwell and Deborah Clark are doing more for soil health and ecology on that operation there, and they're not involved in finishing at all. <clears throat> um, and if we could get cow-calf producers across the country to do that kind of work, it re would really move the needle on improving uh, the efficiency and uh, overall ecological benefits of our, uh, uh, of our beef production system in this country, even as it is. So um, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, a hybrid it, that would be like a Prius, right? It literally is right. You know, if, if it blue nest beef were the Tesla, then they're that Emery and Deborah are kind of like the Prius, right? And, and, and both are good. They can fit in an ecosystem. And then, like you said, kind of bring the whole system along the road and, uh, push it till, you know, who knows, is it 10, 20, 30 years kind of almost doesn't matter. Um, if, if the question we should ask ourselves is, are we learning from the best science to push the whole system in a direction that's more and more sustainable every year? And I, I think we're going to be doing that for decades. So, Hey, Russ, let me ask you on that. You know, when we talk about, you know, national policy and, you know, right now we have, you know, we have a policy that subsidizes, you know, certain crops, you know, corn, wheat, right. soy, whatever, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got federal subsidies for those crops. And when you say, you know, the cow-calf, you know, we've got, what, 750,000 independent ranches in the U.S. And most of them, my understanding is, you know, 50 head or less, you know, they're, they're smaller. <coughs> right. Can these small operations with just a few cattle, do they have enough cows to make that work successfully? Can you do it with 50 cows? Can you, oh, yeah. do you need to get more cows? Uh, and then I guess what would... What would incentivize these 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 ranchers to do that? Because is it more work? Is it less work? Is it is it less resources? More resources? How do we how would we incentivize all these you know this this almost a million ranchers to 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 sort of take up and adopt this policy? Yeah, yeah, um, and and so there's multiple answers to that. Uh, the common assumption going in is that it's going to be more work. The common experience coming out is that it's less work. It's just different work. The harder work is the work between your ears because you have to learn to think and behave um, differently um, going in. Um, <clears throat> there's some people working on kind of exogenous uh, incentives. So like uh, ecosystem markets, you know, get paid for carbon type stuff that would make it worth it. Um, that has some merit. It's also um, complicated and, and take, has its own challenges. Um, I, I think the intermediate term is about um, embodying this, this, the stories and uh, in a better quality product. I truly believe that the products that do go through the full life cycle are coming out healthier. Um, a, a premium product with a better story that consumers can care about. And if they pay a premium for that product, that can um, be a part of a system that trickles all the way back to the farmer, the producer, and that's one of the things we're trying to do here with this Blue Nest game in working with Audubon Society. So Audubon certified now 2 million acres of uh, ranch land in North America. Um, and uh, we're trying to build that relationship direct to consumers 
and be able to take a price where we can pay a substantial premium to the ranchers that brings more ranchers into this kind of grazing where, you know, I live here in Texas um, and, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, um, in fact, 25 years ago, I still laugh when I was leading a production unit out in the West Texas Permian Basin where all this fracking and stuff that you hear about today is, you know, basically made America oil independent again. Somebody at a brainstorming session, well, we ought to put up a wind turbine. We could make money that way, right? And we all laughed, ha, ha, ha. Why would we ever do that? And of course, now if you drive across West Texas, there's wind turbines everywhere, right? And that's because um, people realized, hey, wow, we could really make money with this stuff, right? Uh, and there were, you know, certainly policy implications in the state of Texas. They realized, hey, we got a resource. So they spent a lot of money on infrastructure to build out the grid to be able to do that. Um, and I, I see kind of the same playbook here in regenerative agriculture is we just, we got to boil all this stuff down into really simple things that say, how do we make good businesses and good livelihoods uh, out of this system? And for that rancher in West Texas that 20 years ago just said, oh, it, you mean you'll give me a royalty check for if you can put a, something on my land that goes up instead of down? Sure, I'll take some of that. Um, and if we can make regenerative agriculture kind of go in the same direction, oh, you'll pay me 30% more for my animals than the other guy, than the, than the sale barn? Um, I'll take that. Um, so I, I think that's what we're trying to do and bring scale to it. And so far in regenerative agriculture, We've got a lot of uh, mom and pop folks, you know, in medium scale stuff. I mean, there's some really interesting scale going on, but they're tiny uh, compared to the large feedlot systems, right? So we have to we have to grow this industry from, you know, uh, the the pioneers, the Gabe Browns, the Will Harris's, the Seven Sons Farms. You know, they're all doing great, great stuff. But we need to, and it doesn't mean that any given player has to get bigger. They might. But in aggregate, we got to figure out how to, you know, make that accessible and scalable and available to consumers nationwide. Or, um, you know, now in Texas, it's kind of funny. I mean, the last of the coal plants are just kind of going out of business, right? And that's because all the comp competition is between solar and wind and natural gas, right? So coal's now out of the money. Um, you know, back when we were strategizing these things, that was a target called grid parity, right? How do we get to grid parity? Well, you get to grid parity by starting with a premium and then you work your way over time with scale by bringing costs down and scale up. And I think we have to do the same thing with regenerative agriculture. Um, and, uh, you know, get it will start with premium products, premium markets, but then we have to develop mechanisms that help bring scale You'll have some producers like Birdwell Clark that have scale in their own individual operation, 5,000 head. You'll have other people that have 50 head. It can work just fine at 50 head, but then they're going to need market integrators and aggregators that can aggregate that volume and get it out to people in a way that makes you know, the rest of the costs and economics play out. So I, I think the area will be ripe for entrepreneurs, uh, for investors to um, – you know, develop new ideas in this space. Uh, I think um, that, that the, the scientific logic is really sound. There's some really fundamental, um, and I'm sure you guys know Rob Wolf. Rob's a good friend, right? And, you know, we talk about what we call non-equilibrium thermodynamics. I think there's some really good thermodynamic logic for why this works. Um, but it's kind of all just logic until people get out there and actually do it, right? Um, 
And I think we're early on in that doing it. We're kind of coming out of that phase one where you've had these heroic pioneers that have proven what's possible. And now we're entering phase two, which is figuring out how do we grow this sector um, and, you know, get truly healthy food to more consumers um, and get consumers engaged in this story. Because I, I think consumers want to be a part of it, but it's so complicated, right? Uh, and it's hard to get, right? You know, and as I started in my own journey, I would, you know, drive up and, uh, you know, pick up my own side of beef and a whole hog and whatever these things. Those are great for me, but everyone else in my neighborhood was still going to the grocery store, right? So how do we bring things that can make this more convenient and scalable for folks? Hey, Russ, you, I mean, you, you'd you have to be behind, living behind a rock to not realize that, you know, there's this huge marketing push, media push that we all need to sort of step away from, you know, meat production and, and sort of take up this plant-based diet. And then obviously looming is this sort of uh, uh, sort of promise of this cell, cell cultured meat that's going to go out there and right. it's going to, it's going to save the world. Right. You have any, what do you, what are your, what is your response to that? I mean, I have certainly, I've looked into some of the way they, they do the cell culture and the inputs that are required. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, at least at a high level. Um, you know, I coined this phrase several years ago that seems to have legs. It's not the cow, it's the how. The first thing I say about both those plant-based systems and the cell culture system, um, and, and I, I say this, you know, from my freshman engineering perspective, that they uh, analyzed the problem and came up with the wrong source of the problem. They thought that the cow was the problem when the how was really the problem. Um, in, in reality, both of those things move the pea under the shell. Um, by un unwittingly pointing the problem at the beef itself and now not how the beef was produced, um, that, that, that uh, you create this, and, and I, I don't think it's intentionally deceptive in any way, it's just incomplete analysis, right? So if, if uh, in the plant-based alternatives right now, you have your pea protein-based systems and your soy protein-based systems, both of those systems are still anchored in traditional industrial agriculture that tills the soil, erodes the soil, releases the carbon from the soil, is anything but regenerative, right? Um, and, and so you're still suffering the same problems with both of those um, kind of systems um, if, if you don't address it, right? Now, the cellular agriculture stuff um, is interesting. It may uh, make, it would certainly make sense um, in, in, uh, in a spaceship or something, right, where you don't have free sunshine. Uh, but back to the thing I mentioned earlier in terms of the thermodynamics of planet Earth, it's really hard hard to beat free sunshine, free energy uh, with biology. And this is to me the Achilles heel of the cell cellular agriculture thing is that you're replacing incoming abundant sunshine of which the earth has plenty of with some form of synthetic energy, right? It could be from a nuclear plant or a fossil fuel plant, but something's got to uh, heat that bath. Something's got to drive it. Now, some of this stuff, it, it's kind of, they, 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 they use words, like you, you've looked at the inputs, right? Some of those inputs are, um, you know, because it's basically just a synthetic metabolism, right? You know, it's a robotic metabolism of sorts, um, but there's this magic word media, right? Uh, cellular media. Uh, the first law of thermodynamics says that if there's energy in food, that energy had to come from somewhere, right? And if you peel those things apart, um, and, and, you know, some of the uh, best life cycle analysis out there that's done that, you, you end up that, hey, you had to start by 
um, capturing that in a growing uh, sugar plant like uh, corn sugars, uh, you know, in a pasture somewhere. So once again, you're still caught in that industrial agriculture. And now, but you replaced part of what sunshine would normally do with synthetic energy that you had to add to it. Um, and I think that's going to be a limiting factor. Some of the early analysis suggested, hey, this was going to be an outwin. Some of the middle uh, vintage analysis said, hey, maybe not so much. Some of the latest analysis says, gosh, we may end up spending more energy on synthetic foods than we did producing natural foods. Um, we need to pay attention to that. And I, I would suggest that that's kind of an inevitable outcome of that process of replacing sunshine with synthetic energy. Um, the inevitable advantage of regenerative agriculture that no one's considered, um, and you know, we've talked about, we just don't have the data to do the, the input for it yet, um, is that if you grow food in a way that grows more food, I, I, I like to say it's, it's not even just like eating your cake and having, cake, having your cake too. It's like eating your cake and having more cake to eat. That's kind of what these regenerative agriculture methods do because you, again, capture more solar energy and growing life. Um, that's ultimately your uh, completely uh, biggest advantage of regenerative agriculture. So if I can grow two or three times as much food on an acre of land because I've managed it in a way that's regenerative, there's nothing you could ever do in an industrial model to compete with free, you know, two or three times as much free sunshine um, as any other option out there. It's inevitably going to trumpet. And this is what I think ultimately uh, is kind of the long-term target of this grid parity for food, the equivalent of when solar and wind energy become cost equivalent to coal power and put coal power out of business. I think in the long run, as our food system gets more productive and more regenerative, sorry about that. Um, um, it, uh, it'll become inevitably uh, more economical, but only if we, uh, uh, you know, prove that in reality. Yeah. You know, that, that is a really interesting point too. Cause I, I think it was Bobby Gill that we had on the show is just mm -hmm. talking about some of the stacking principles you can get when you do these rotational grazing, where right. I believe the example he used is like some really like low, um, you know, like low tack, uh, as simple as having a, like something over a goat's mouth. So it couldn't, or it was something over, I can't remember exactly how he described it, but it, it prevented them from like feeding on the grapevines, but they could still eat the grass beneath it. So it was like, they right. were providing the environment for this, this vineyard to grow in a really good way. Meanwhile, also growing themselves and not necessarily deterring the growth of the stuff that we could also use like the grapes. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, Will Harris has, you know, these 20 some odd layers of uh, things in his business. The real regenerative farmers out here aren't just producing beef or chicken or pork. Um, the, the real pioneers are layering things. One of my um, new best friends this past year, Mimi Castile, uh, runs Hopewell Wines in uh, Oregon. Um, just, uh, we sat on a panel together in New York um, just and she's doing exactly as you described. She's using goats as her basically her maintenance crew, um, and she's producing regenerative wine. And she's just really switched on to understanding nutrient cycling and soils. And you know she's gone through different species of goats, finding the right goats to work in her ecosystem for the maximum productivity of the grapes. Um, and uh, th this is uh, again, you know, that th there's not going to be a playbook for this 
anytime soon and perhaps ever, that the real innovators are trying to look at their ecosystem and is how do I help this ecosystem in this place at this time, you know, thrive as best of it as it can. Um, that that's where the um, the the real uh, you know magic's going to start happening. And once they start down that journey, they'll find. I mean, again, the well-known pioneers like Alan and Will and Gabe and you know you know these folks that. that they'll all tell you that they're not done innovating, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're constantly looking at how do I add another layer? How do I push this system further? And again, I think that's really similar to y'all in the human performance space, right? Which is, you know, how, how do I, you know, raise my game even more mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, hey, I'm following the script of something. So th- this is the future of regenerative agriculture. Yeah, and I mean, every regenerative farmer that we've had on or expert that we've had on has said just that where it's the hard sell for this process is that you can't just say, Hey, this is how it works. This is what Will's doing, you know, over right. in the Southeast. Therefore right. you do that in the Northwest. Right. It right. is a really like find out what works for you on your part specific spot through some basic principles. Right. And then like you said, it, it, there's another layer of that yet too, where what we're doing right now may not be what we're doing in five years. So it's definitely not like a plug and play method. That's exactly right. The, um, the principles are pretty much common anywhere. They'll, they'll work in any part of the planet, uh, but the exact mechanisms are going to vary quite a bit from one place to another. And you just have to, that the trick is um, you have to change your mind um, to be an observant one instead of just an obedient one. Um, and, and even technologically, uh, you know, I, I come from a background where my day job was inventing uh, technologies or investing in people that were inventing, you know, crazy new technologies. But technology as a whole in agriculture up until now has been entirely focused on, you know, how do we cheat nature? How do we imitate it? Genetically engineer something, kill something, um, whatever the case may be. And both the human mind and our technological systems are still relevant here. They're more important than ever, but they both have to be like this flux tower stuff that I mentioned. It, it's, it's not a technology to figure out how to cheat nature. It's a technology to try to watch nature, to observe it, to understand it so that we can nurture, coax her, cajole her, not in a way that she doesn't want to do, but we're literally trying to figure out what does nature as a whole want to do so we can be a part of it. And frankly, I think when we do that, our own health follows with it at the same time because you get more nutrient-rich food. Um, you know, one of the things I'm pretty sure we're going to um, see, I, I, I guess I didn't mention it, um, in this research project that we're doing under the umbrella of Arizona State University, um, there's a lot of uh, qualitative research on on um, family values and motivations and incentives that are part of that as well. And we'll start to appreciate just how different that is. You know, are people happier? Are they more satisfied? Are they do they have a better life going with it as well? So um, it, it's hard. It's easy. It, it's easy to write papers about cholesterol, right? it's harder to write papers about healthy humans, right? Because a healthy human has a lot of stuff going on and, and the pastures are just going to be the same way. Farmlands, ecosystems, you know, how to make them healthy. Again, we've, we've turned our attention to this life thing um, because birds are just to me that it's not something I started with, but um, like uh, they're, they're like this uh, ideal biological sensor that votes with its wings, right? You know, it just says, hey, this system over here is healthier. If, if you have a chance, I don't know if you've been out on some of these regenerative farms, but if you look around, you'll notice more insects, uh, more bees, more butterflies, more birds. Um, if you're lucky, you may see some uh, more deer or larger scale wildlife. 
the life will tell us, and it may be, you know, five or 10 years before we can quantitatively track what's going on using our scientific sensors. But I think in the meanwhile, I think we're going to learn a lot by just watching the birds in our case anyway. Yeah, I think that's a great, you know, a great metric, you know, and I, and I kind of draw similar parallels in human health. It's not what your specific one lab marker is. It's, it's, it's how you're doing comprehensively. And I think that's a great way to look at this. That's exactly right. One thing going back to the, to the, to the uh, lab-grown meat, I mean, I think if we look at the inputs required, particularly like amino acids, they've got to come from somewhere. I mean, there's no protein fairy that makes these, uh, these cells grow magically. And where do they get those amino acids? My suspicion is it's going to be through monocultured soy, pea, and so on and so forth. So Correct. it's going to continue to contribute to this de degenerative agriculture system. That's exactly what I mean by moving the pea under the shell, right? If you... If, if you didn't solve the how of whatever the input was, you didn't solve the actual problem, right? Um, and so, um, it, honestly, it doesn't matter whether uh, you eat broccoli, beans, or bananas, or beef from an from a, uh, environmental perspective. It, it's plausible that you could grow regeneratively produced soybeans, but no, no one's doing it, um, or very few people would be doing it. It's certainly not what the mass ingredient uh, is in these synthetic foods at the moment. It's all monoculture stuff, which just all it does is amplify, accelerate, and extend the problem that we're trying to solve, right? This is um, to, to a large extent driving me nuts. On the other hand, it sure is bringing attention to the space where people go, gee, I want to care about my food. I want to care about how my food has pr been produced. Um, like you said, a bunch of marketing dollars are poured into telling a story to make people think that that problem in totality has been solved. And in many ways, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I hope some people just keep digging and asking questions and they'll discover, oh, well, yeah, maybe the how actually does matter. And if the how matters, what I want is real beef, but better beef. Um, we, I like to say better beef with a bigger purpose, right? So the beef itself is a higher quality, but it has all these other consequential effects, whether you care about birds or carbon or water or farmer livelihoods. Um, all of these things can get better if we farm and produce our food in a way that helps nature do what she wants and try instead of unintentionally tries to break her. We're seeing, uh, you know, projections, you know, as world population goes up as, as wealth around the world, you know, increases like particularly places like China where, where they're, they're rapidly right. becoming more wealthy. Their demand for animal agriculture products is going up significantly. And I know I see places like, I know the Chinese are buying up a lot of land in, in Australia and some of these other places where they get the majority of their beef. Are we going to see those guys adopt regenerative techniques? I mean, what is, what is your gut feel for that? Are we going to see the beef demand go down and, and the plant-based products are going to kind of take over? Are we going to still consider to, are we going to, are we just going to grow more beef? I, well, I, I personally hope we grow um, more beef that's been produced regeneratively. Um, I, I, again, I think if if there's a future for plant-based products, um, it'll have to be something that's more sustainable than our current monoculture farming system. I don't know if you all are familiar with the um, uh, perennial uh, polyculture work of a group in Kansas called the Land Institute. Um, I'm not really big on grains myself, but they basically have uh, bred over a, a 30 or 40 year period here, this Kernza wheat. I don't know if you guys have heard about it yet. Patagonia is marketing a Kernza beer now. But um, instead of having an annual wheat that you plow up and replant every year, you have a perennial crop that you harvest a grain from, and then the crop regrows and you harvest a grain again next year. 
um, that thing actually is accumulating carbon in the soil. They've actually just read a paper here a couple months ago of some wonderful Eddie Covariance Tower work they've done over some of their current up production. There's a place in the future for perennial grain crops or perennial crops um, in a system. There are, um, you know, out, out in California, Singing Frog Farms doing kind of a local thing there where they're in Sebastopol, I think. Um, uh, growing, you know, uh, produce for farmers markets in a way that's really, I'll call them the Will Harris of, of uh, plant-based um, production. So it is, it's possible to grow plant foods in a very regenerative manner. So I, I don't think this is just kind of like, you know, uh, only about beef. Uh, I, I think beef and grasslands um, are the planet's largest, most scalable agroecosystem. Um, and so it, it probably is our largest lever that we can pull to heal the health of people and planet at the same time. And I think if we do that, there'll be plenty of beef to feed people. And, and you know, I just, I, th I think the whole kind of less or more question is kind of just the wrong question. I think if people just eat better food, then the more or less question will take care of itself. Um, Price and mar the market will respond to price signals. You know, if people can get paid a premium for selling better beef, you'll get more better beef. And you get more land managed in a way that's bringing back birds and restoring carbon and improving water infiltration and stuff like that because people are paying for it. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, and they're getting more out of it too because it's more nutrient dense and, you know, it doesn't have any of that nasty stuff in it that we don't want in the food. So all, all those things kind of work together. So I, I think if we just focus on better meats, the more or less will take care of itself in time. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. And I think, uh, you know, I was unaware as well of uh, the, the Patagonia, I think it's Patagonia Provisions, if I'm not mistaken. Right, that's right. That's their food mm -hmm. arm. They're, they're doing, um, they're supplying uh, beef for, uh, excuse me, bison for their jerky from Dan O'Brien in uh, Wild Idea Buffalo Company in South Dakota, doing great regenerative stuff. Patagonia has become a visionary leader in the regenerative space. Um, and doing doing awesome stuff. Yeah, I think they're they're targeting uh, ocean, land, and air. From what I gather, it yeah, seems yeah. like, yeah. and from the plant and animal side of things, which is really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I think people hear Patagonia and they think of like the outdoor industry. They don't always understand how much of a reach they have within that stuff. But um, right. yeah, it's interesting. Um, trying to think if there is anything else I wanted to to ask you about about that stuff. Um, Sean, do you have any other questions or? Well, I just hope if Russ, there's anything else you, you'd like to mention, I think that'd be great. We, we're, we're coming short on time and I know it's, you've been very generous with your time, but, um, pleasure. you know, if there's anything else that you think we need to know, uh, we'd love to hear it. If not, let us know how people can find out more about what you do, where you're, where to find you and, uh, that sort of stuff. Sure. Uh, they can just go to bluenestbeef.com to find out more about the current business. Um, follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook. It just uh, uh, here this week, starting to learn how to use Instagram a little bit myself, right? <laughs> so <laughs> to try to make our face more visible for um, folks. Um, you can also go to the grassfedexchange.com uh, to learn more. Our big annual conference this year will be in Fort Worth, May 27th through the 29th. This is a lot of the world's best regenerative um, grassland farmers and producers and also some marketing and folks and other players in that ecosystem come together to learn from each other. Um, that's, that's, that's probably the best way to uh, stay on top of things from now. And you can also, if you're interested, I, um, I have my own Twitter feed at just uh, Russ Underbar Concert. 
um, that, that people that might be interested in uh, uh, in following just my own crazy opinions over time uh, could be interested as well. Yeah, I, I, I also have a lot of crazy opinions, or at least many people would say so. But uh, we're we're very happy to see a sort of a, a merging or a marrying of uh, these people that are in the, the the actual food producers and people that are the consumers that, that are concerned about health. And I think there's a really natural partnership there that's been sort of, uh, you know, as most people, we've kind of become very remote to how our food is produced. And we and most of us obtain that through, obviously, these giant companies and we're or something said like 10 companies control 90% of the world's food right, right now. And so it's, it's very nice to, to sort of pair up and marry the the consumer with, with, with the individual ranchers and producers. Yeah. And we've come through an area era where we've relied on things like organic certification or uh, no hormones or no, you know, little slogans of no, no's. Um, and one of the things we hope to do here in this relationship with our partners at the National Audubon Society is, I mean, I, I would love people to learn a lot about carbon and water and all this other stuff, but I, you know, I, I hope that the uh, appreciation of uh, understandable concepts like bird habitat um, create a bridge, a gateway, if you will, where people can relearn about food through things that are more accessible than you know, what's a ton of carbon. Um, and then over time, um, really learn to appreciate that, wow, food is a part of this really complex system. I think hopefully we leave behind that era of, of you know, and I think we unintentionally broke it um, when we started inventing synthetic everything, right? You know, so synthetic meats is probably just the latest extension of what I'll call the Tang era that started in the 1960s, right? You know, we called it orange juice, but it was really just orange colored sugar water. Um, and, and to realize that, but, but then over a couple of generations of that, we grew kids that thought that chocolate milk came from brown cows if they thought it came from cows at all. Right. Um, and, and so I think if, if we can begin a journey where people can rediscover the real food coming from real places that does really good things for people in the environment, um, is a, is a real, not only a real opportunity, but it's a big opportunity. We can take this thing that is often pointed at as a big problem and turned it into something that's a, a net good and it solves a lot of these other problems that we have. I mean, you know, w whether what you care about most is the, the, the bird or the farmer, um, you know, I, I think the action you take is the same, right? You, you choose to buy your food in a way that's doing something good for farmers and good for birds at the same time and everybody comes out ahead. So I would argue scientifically that's because we're getting the thermodynamics right behind the scene. Um, but, but in reality, it's because um, there's thoughtful people out there doing the best they can day in and day out to, to figure out how to work with nature um, instead of fighter, which we unintentionally did. I think, like I said, going back 10,000 years, we didn't know it. Um, you know, we put that beginning of civilization as the moment we invented the plow. Um, and it really was great, but we didn't know that what we were doing was basically depleting and exploiting nature's assets that have been built up over millions of years. Um, and you're right. We don't know whether it's 60 years or whatever of soil we have left. There's high uncertainty on that. We know if we keep going this direction, we're going to deplete nature's assets and we're not going to be able to thrive and live on this planet. Whereas the promise of regeneration is the opposite, right? Is if we work in a way that maximizes that capture solar energy, everybody wins, everybody goes home healthy, um, and um, a lot of problems get solved in the process. So.
There you go. Awesome. Well, uh, we will definitely link your website and social handles to the show notes so folks can go check out what you're up to and some of the stuff on that. But otherwise, thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your day, Russ, to come on and, and chat with us. My pleasure, Zach, Sean. Real, real joy. Thanks. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.